Hi there, and welcome to the No Ordinary People podcast, where we honor the stories of strangers and learn what people really wish others understood about them. My name is April Coleman, and I'm the host of this podcast, and this is episode two. Today, my guest is my dear friend, Katie Fredrickson. Katie lives with her husband, Sam, and their adorable weenie dog, Baron, in Southwest Washington, right on the border of Washington and Oregon. She works as an Airbnb property manager by day for a small business here in Boise, and that keeps her pretty busy. But in the little bit of spare time she does have, she loves to write and just really loves talking about her love for Jesus and his church. On today's show, you're going to hear Katie and I talk about some really important but possibly triggering topics. We do talk about mental illness and suicidal thoughts on today's show, so I wanted to give that bit of content warning before you take a listen. Whether or not you're someone who struggles with mental health issues, I think you'll find you can relate to so much of what Katie shares on today's show. She talks to us about her bipolar disorder diagnosis, but also just about her general feelings throughout and about the pandemic, which so many of us can relate to. We talk a lot about mental health, the things that help, the things that don't help so much. I do want to reiterate, though, before you listen, that neither Katie nor myself are medical professionals. We are only speaking from our own experiences. Katie has a specific mental illness that she's been diagnosed with in bipolar disorder, and I myself have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Both of us work with medical professionals. We both take medication that is monitored by our doctors, and we also go to therapy. I can't encourage you enough that if you're experiencing trouble or having concerns about your mental health, that you contact your doctor and consider getting a really good counselor. When we talk about suicide in the episode, I want to also reiterate that there are resources available. And if you were to be experiencing suicidal ideation at any point, I would really encourage you to reach out to the suicide hotline in your state or the national hotline. And I'm putting links to those in the show notes. It's also really important that you reach out to a friend or family member that you can trust. These are some serious topics we talk about today. There's also hope to be found. What I think you're going to hear about in the episode today is a message of hope and encouragement. You're going to hear that you are not alone if you're struggling with mental health, stress, trauma, and if you know someone who is struggling with those things, even if you aren't yourself, this episode is going to be great for you too because we talk about what are some ways that friends and family can support loved ones who are struggling with mental health. It's a subject that has some stigma surrounding it. And so my hope with today's episode is that you will hear Katie and I talking about it in a really normal way. This episode is so important and I'm so grateful to Katie for opening up in such a vulnerable way about something that's really hard to talk about. Let's get to the show. Well, hi, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, April. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to have you. I think something that's so fun about us is that we have become such good friends, but I don't think we started out from a position where we knew we would become friends. (laughs) No, you were my professor in college. I was getting an education degree. It's funny to me that you were my education professor and you're no longer a teacher and I didn't become a teacher. And so (laughs) that thing that we had in common, um, neither of us really have anymore. I mean, I guess you still homeschool, so you educate your own kids, but, um, but yeah, I, I, that semester, I will say, I thought you were super cool. I could tell you loved Jesus. And so that was nice. And, um, I just thought you were cool. And then at the end of the semester, I asked to add you on Facebook. Cause I wanted to know where you guys went to church. Cause we were looking for a new church then through Facebook and stuff. We just stayed connected and over time just became good friends. I think cause of if gathering mostly. Probably. Yeah. We've definitely become good friends. I love that. That's how our friendship started. We are in different stages of life. We are at least a decade apart in age, but (laughs) we've just become really good friends. And I love that. Yeah. I love it too. And I mean, for, for me, just to brag on you a little bit for a moment, I feel like you're like a big sister to me. I'm the oldest in my family. And so I never had a big sister, but I totally look up to you as a Christian, but also as a mom and as a writer and as a wife. And so, um, it's, I I feel like a lot of times the decisions I make are influenced by the way that I feel like you've lived your life so faithfully for Jesus. And I want to be faithful like that too. So that's me just bragging on you for a little bit. Cause I definitely look up to you and love you like a big sister. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to ask you about Lent. You decided to give up social media and that's big. And actually today, the day we're recording is officially the final day of Lent. It's the day before Easter, but it sounds like you have made decisions to continue with this. So tell me a little bit about how did you decide that and how's it going and what's next? Yeah. Well, so I didn't do Lent growing up really. I grew up in a more evangelical tradition where we just didn't really practice Lent. But a few years ago, I gave up shame for Lent and it was a really powerful time. And so I've done it a few times since then, but I've always kind of secretly judged people who gave up social media for Lent. I was like, oh, you're so basic. And then they would, you know, always post and be like, I'm giving up social media for Lent. And I'd be like, okay, Mr. Holier than that. I was just very judgy about it, which is usually when the Lord comes to like knock you off your seat of judgment and be like, move over. That spot's mine. So for my job, I spend a lot of time on my phone. I answer messages and stuff all day long on an app. So it was very easy for me to be constantly scrolling on social media in between time that I was working. And I was just getting the sense that I was really using social media to numb out and to avoid feeling pain or to avoid facing discomfort or conflict. Like even when I would like fight with my husband or have like a squabble with him, instead of working through it, my first instinct would be to just like kind of brush it aside and scroll on my phone which I was realizing was definitely just the way that I was coping with uncomfortable emotions. And so at the start of Lent, I decided to give up social media. And as Lent has gone on, I just feel like the Lord is not really done working with me in this area yet. And I think I was confirmed that because I decided to keep going through at least the end of the summer. We have a vacation planned for mid-August and I'm kind of thinking maybe after that I might get back on. And the minute I decided that, I immediately spent the next two days with the most powerful urge to get back on Instagram. Instagram and Facebook (laughs) that I had almost gotten over throughout the rest of Lent. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think this will be like a forever thing for me. I don't think I'm really going to give it up permanently because I do feel like there are things I want to say, but right now I feel like I need to be more faithful about speaking truth to the people who are physically in front of me rather than faceless strangers on the internet. Yeah, that's really impressive. I know I struggle with social media sometimes. I think a lot of people do, but just to see that instead of like chomping at the bit to get back on immediately tomorrow, you know, when you're technically allowed to, you're really Mm -hmm. feeling convicted and like you want to take it even further. So I'm really, I'm looking forward to hearing how this, you know, turns out as, as you move forward as well. Yeah. It's, It's a little nerve wracking actually, because there's almost like this FOMO, you know, of like, oh, what's happening on Facebook that I'm just not a part of. But the reality is it's nothing that typically gives me life. It's usually pretty life sucking. And so I think there is a need for people who can give life to show up in a life sucking space. But for me right now, I feel like I'm just so depleted um, emotionally right now from the pandemic and just a hard season at work. And we moved at the beginning of the pandemic. So we've been pretty isolated throughout this whole time. And I just feel like for me, I need to fill my cup in other ways rather than pouring myself out to others on social media right now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for telling us about that. It leads well into the majority of what we will be talking about you are coming into this space and kind of in a vulnerable position. You're going to share with us some things that are pretty personal to you. And I really appreciate that you're willing to do that and just kind of educate us and show us how we can enter into a space where we're talking about mental health. You personally have bipolar disorder. And that is not something I think that a lot of people, I think people have heard of it, but they don't really know what that means. So before we enter into this whole conversation about how it impacts your life and some other details of that, can you kind of give us a working definition of what that means if someone has bipolar disorder? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so bipolar disorder is a mood disorder. Like depression is a mood disorder. So it affects your mood. So people with bipolar disorder cycle through phases of depression and phases of mania. Depressive phases are a lot like depression is in people with depression. You have less energy, no interest in doing things that you normally enjoy doing, just a lot of sadness and heaviness, really tired, sleeping too much. You might struggle with hygiene or other basic daily 
tasks, you know, like doing the dishes or getting out of bed in the morning. For me, it also involves a lot of thoughts of suicide and suicidal ideation, which is just something that I've always struggled with in my depressive episodes. Different people with bipolar disorder, their episodes last a varied amount of time. But for me, the depression usually lasts somewhere between six weeks to several months. And then I swing into a mania, which mania, again, they can vary for how long they last for people. Um, And mania can be extremely dangerous, especially if it lasts a long time. But it's where you might feel the need to take excessive risks, like driving your car way too fast down the road, or for some people taking a lot of drugs or other risky behavior, you know, unsafe sex, things like that. You can have impulsivity issues like impulsive spending or gambling or things like that. For me, it's a sense of heightened just agitation. It's like, I feel like I have bees buzzing in my head and I can't think straight. So I talk really fast and I think really fast and I am typically moving faster and talking faster than my body can actually keep up with. And so I'm very, very tired, but I don't feel the need to sleep so I can stay awake for days on end. And that's pretty common with mania as well. So those are some of the things that are characteristic of mania. And for me, that period is usually pretty brief. It only lasts, you know, maybe two weeks at the most, but it's a pretty scary time because that impulsive risk-taking behavior combined with the agitation and the anger and the outburst issues can be pretty dangerous. So for me, the times that I've had to be hospitalized have all been during manias. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think what's interesting is I've always thought of the depressive state as being dangerous. Like you said, maybe the suicidal ideation occurs in that space. I didn't realize how dangerous the manic periods could be as well. Yeah, I think for people who are like mildly familiar with bipolar disorder, but maybe don't understand all the intricacies, it can sound like mania is more of like just letting loose and having fun, which for some people it can be that. But for me, if I'm really agitated, but I'm also impulsive, it might sound pretty good to in the moment of anger, step out in front of a car and let it hit me. And those are things that in manias I've considered doing or even tried to do. So yeah, I mean, both are dangerous. Depression is also very dangerous, of course. Um, and bipolar is a lifelong disease. There's no cure. There is treatment. So like for me, I take a little pill every day and I have anxiety medication for times when the anxiety portion is getting really out of control, but without my meds, I have a really hard time staying stable. It is a lifelong condition. And so you have to learn to live with those highs and lows and how to navigate through them. Cause even with my meds, my mood is not hundred percent stable all of the time. And I still have those swings. They're just maybe not as extreme as they would be without the aid of medication. And I would imagine like with much of the mental health world and a lot of mental health issues, it's different from person to person. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It's very personalized. With bipolar disorder, there are two types. There's type one and type two. And one of them is considered like a little bit more extreme, which is typically when you have like more extreme manias, but either one is definitely not fun to live with. And you know, it's, it is a life-threatening condition, even though I think a lot of times you think of life-threatening conditions as being like a heart disease or diabetes, things like that. And we don't don't see so much the way that mental illnesses can affect our ability to live our lives and put our lives at risk, but they're definitely just as dangerous and should be taken just as seriously as people with other health concerns that are life-threatening. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks. So let's jump in a little more to your personal story then. How did you find out that you had bipolar disorder? What were the first signs that you were like, hmm, something's not quite typical, you know, compared to my peers? Or what was the first sign that you were not handling stress or the world around you in a typical way? Yeah. I mean, for me, I started exhibiting signs of mental illness really early on. I can remember my first panic attack and I was only about three years old, which is very young. And so for me, it's always been something I've struggled with. I was considering thoughts of suicide and dwelling on that pretty consistently by the time I was in maybe third or fourth grade. So it's always been something I've lived with. I kept it bottled up a lot. Enneagram one here. So I want to be good and I (laughs) want people to like me and I want people to think that I'm a good kid. And that was really important to me as a child and as an adolescent was that people thought I was good, that they saw me in a positive way, I guess. And so I kept a lot of it really close to the chest. My parents, I think, could sense that something was wrong and they did take me to see a few different counselors and stuff. But when I would get in, I wanted so badly to be well-liked and well-respected that I would pretty much just bluff my way through it and pretend that everything was fine. And so it wasn't until I was away at college, my sophomore year, I was living in Chicago, but I just got really, really sick in the fall semester of my sophomore year. And 
the depression got really bad to the point that I was missing weeks on end of classes. I could not get out of bed. I wasn't eating. I lost a ton of weight really quickly and I was just really depressed. And so it all ended up with me having to go to the hospital after some pretty severe suicidal ideation. And that's actually not when I was diagnosed bipolar. I ended up moving home and was at the hospital two more times. They thought I just had depression. And then finally, the third time the doctor said, none of these antidepressants are working for you. They actually seem to make you a lot worse. He said, I think that's because you're bipolar. You don't just have depression. You have bipolar disorder. Put me on a different drug. It's called Latuda. And that's what I'm still on today. And it works like a dream for me. It's definitely my miracle drug. Just keeps me really stable and sane. And so that's kind of the story of how I got diagnosed. For a lot of people with bipolar disorder, it presents itself in early adulthood, somewhere between, you know, maybe 17 to mid 20s, as do other mental illnesses like schizophrenia and things like that. So so the medication is definitely helpful. Mm-hmm. Are there things that impact your bipolar disorder, even medicated, things that make it better or worse? Yes, absolutely. So for me, sleep is crucial. If I don't get enough sleep, I am going to have a mood swing. Like it, that's just the way it is. And so I get a solid nine to 10 hours every single night and I'll put pretty much my whole life on hold to make sure I can get enough sleep. And times when I go to bed and I feel like I don't need sleep or I feel like I could stay up all night, no problem. That's a huge warning sign to me mm-hmm. that I need to start taking care of myself by sleeping and, and exercising and eating right and reducing stress in my life because otherwise I'm going to swing into an episode. Similarly, too much stress is a big trigger for me. And the times in my life when I have been the most manic have all been stress-induced. Like that time at school, which was kind of a mixed state, depressive and manic. I was working two jobs and taking a full load of classes and balancing a new relationship at home. And so I was definitely under a lot of stress. Those are the times when I have to really be careful and monitor my stress, which leads me to often kind of take inventory of my life and how much is on my plate and be kind of ruthless in taking things out, even if they're good things or things I want to do or things that even sometimes people are counting on me for, because I have to do that to keep myself healthy. So I would say those are the two biggest indicators are stress and lack of sleep. But there are other things too, you know, the time of year, winter is hard for me with long gray days and not a lot of sunlight that can definitely be really hard. In fact, Christmas time is a really difficult time for me because it's right Mm -hmm. around the shortest day of the year. And I typically like clockwork around the middle of December, have a really severe episode every year because just that lack of sunlight really affects me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what else do you do to help manage stress? You mentioned that you need sleep and that you're pretty good about managing your schedule. Do you have any other stress management techniques that work really well for you? I mean, I wish I had like the magic bullet. It's like, if you have stress in your life, here's the way to cure it. Because I think we all make a lot of money if I had that answer. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think for me, it's definitely balancing my schedule. Also learning to say what's essential versus what's not. Again, Enneagram one. So for me, life is very black and white. Yes or no, this way or that way. And so I have to teach myself to see a lot more gray. It's okay if this chore is done, but it's not done exactly perfect. Half done is sometimes good enough. So it's learning to manage my own expectations of myself Hmm. um, and to not constantly tell myself it has to be perfect or you can't stop working or you can't let it go. And just learning to let things be okay at good enough. That's a major way to manage stress. And yeah, sleeping right, eating right is important. If I eat, I've noticed a lot of sugar or just a lot of fatty foods. I start to feel sick, which then causes me to feel sick in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, So while, you know, vacations and, and eating out are fun, I do have to kind of manage that with some healthy eating or it can definitely affect my mood as well. And then for the wintertime, I have a sun lamp that I sit under in the mornings, you know, to get that vitamin D. I do take vitamin D vitamins as well in the wintertime. So that helps me manage it. Drinking lots of water is important. It just helps keep your body going. And also the medication I take is, can be kind of hard on your liver. So if I'm not drinking enough water, it can cause other problems too. So water drinking is really important for that. Yeah, those are some things. 
I don't know. So it sounds like, yeah, no, it just sounds like a lot of simple things. Yeah, totally. And like basic self-care, not like getting facials and manicures, but like (laughs) taking an hour every day to read a book or even for me, sometimes it's just as simple as like taking the time to take a shower and do my hair afterward, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, Because when you're depressed, that kind of thing can feel monumental to get in the shower and wash your hair and style it afterwards. But it can also, if you can get up the energy, make you feel a lot better afterward and make you feel like you've accomplished something important, which that sense of accomplishment is really important in depressive episodes because it makes you feel like you did something good. It makes you feel like you're good and you can do good. And so performing even simple tasks that give you a sense of accomplishment can be really beneficial to you and those, or me in those dark moments. Yeah. Me too. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so when we met and like you said, you were a student of mine, mm-hmm. I would not have known about your mental illness had you not come and shared that with me. You know, you wanted me to be aware as one of your professors and knowing you now, you're a very high functioning person. You, you handle and manage a lot. Your job is really kind of high pressure. You have a lot going on and you handle it all really well. And if I'm being really honest, as one of your friends, sometimes I forget, you know, that Mm -hmm. you have bipolar disorder and this is something that you live with every day. So how is that a challenge for you that unlike someone who say, you know, is a type one diabetic or is battling cancer or things that are a lot more outward facing, how is it a challenge for you that the thing that you're battling is kind of invisible sometimes? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, it's funny that you say that sometimes you forget because sometimes I forget. And there are times <laughs> where like I've been really stable for a month or two and I think I'm not even bipolar. I can totally <laughs> stop taking my meds and mm. do whatever I want and I'll be fine. And nope, that's a bad idea. Um <laughs> I think it is hard because like I said, I wear that mask. And so that little girl who wants everyone to like her and everyone to think she's doing everything right still is very much alive in my heart and can put up that same mask of everything's fine and I'm doing okay. And so for me, it is a struggle to, when I need help, just ask for it because it might not be obvious from the outside that I need help. And so becoming my own best advocate has been really important for me to when I need something or I have something that's hard happening in my life to just tell someone and ask specifically for what I need. That could look like saying, Hey, I'm really depressed these days and I'm having a hard time feeding myself. Would you mind bringing over dinner on Thursday or whatever? And that sucks because it's embarrassing. And it also takes a large dose of humility to ask people for exactly what you need. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's like, I'm really struggling with suicidal ideation and I just need someone to come hang out with me tonight because Sam's going to be, that's my husband. Sam's going to be at work. And so could you just like come watch TV with me for a couple hours until he gets home? And people are so willing to help, but a lot of people I think don't know what to do unless you actually ask them for what you need. And so you kind of have to overcome that fear of people seeing how vulnerable you are and take the first step to ask for help. And people are willing to give it, but they have to know that you need it, you know? So that's kind of how I've had to balance the fact that I do appear really high functioning from the outside. And I would say I am high functioning. So yeah, just taking that first step to tell people when I need help rather than expecting them to pick up on it because with the way that I am and the way that my life is, people aren't going to pick up on it quite as easy. Yeah, that makes sense. And you talked a little bit about, you know, it being embarrassing or needing to have some some amount of humility. And then you mentioned earlier, you gave up shame for Lent one year. So it sounds like that's kind of this perfect storm of... A bad, a bad (laughs) recipe, right? If you struggle with shame, you struggle with that embarrassment, you don't want to come across like you can't handle things. It sounds kind of like this perfect storm of it being really difficult to reach out when you need help. So is that something that's gotten easier over time as the years have gone on and you've learned how to manage your disease? Yeah. And I think that's part of why I'm so open about it when times are good, because then it's easier to reach out when times are bad. If I waited until times were bad to be like, Hey, by the way, I have, I have bipolar disorder and I'm not doing okay. People I'm sure would still be willing to help, but it would be a little bit more, I think, jarring to Mm -hmm. them, especially to people close to me, like my close friends or my family. Whereas when it's something we talk about and it's something we check in on often, I mean, even you and I are constantly checking in, Hey, how's your heart doing this week? You know? Mm -hmm. 
it makes it easier when the time does come that you actually need help because that foundation of trust and knowing that someone's already got your back has already been built. Like I said, growing up, I just didn't want anyone to know that I was struggling at all. So the more people that know that I struggle in general, the easier it is to ask for help when I need it. And I've actually gotten to the point where I'm pretty vulnerable on social media. Maybe not when I'm right in the thick of things, but maybe a few days after or after I've had some time to process. And I've had a lot of people reach out and say, hey, hearing about how this has affected you or your experiences has actually helped me help my sister or my daughter or whoever with their disease because I understand what they're going through a little better now. That's always been really invaluable to know that my vulnerability doesn't just help me. It also helps other people see what other people are going through and creates more compassion for mentally ill people in general, which I think also it just creates compassion for everybody in general when you see that everybody has their own struggles, you know, and I think that can be hard to remember in our world today where things are so interconnected, but it can look a lot like a highlight reel that when you do see someone sharing something vulnerable on social media, it reminds you just that human part of all of us that needs to be seen and loved. Yeah. I know that you've shared with me too sometimes that there seems to be some misperceptions or lack of understanding about mental health in general. So Mm -hmm. what kinds of things have you come up against that you see as real misunderstandings about mental health and what causes it, how it can be helped and things like that? Mm -hmm. I did a brief series about this on my Instagram and I talked about some misconceptions surrounding suicide specifically in a similar vein, a common misconception about mental health issues is that it's attention seeking or maybe selfish. You're just trying to get people to listen to you or feel sorry for you, or you're just kind of being a sad sap and bringing everybody down. And I think that's a huge misconception. You would never go to someone with cancer and be like, dude, your cancer journey, like, I know you're going through it, but like, man, you're just really bringing the tone of the whole place down. Like that would be very disrespectful. So it's the same with, with mental illness, you know, that we're not seeking attention when we ask for help or tell people that we're struggling with something. We're literally sick and want people to know what that sickness is like for us and, and just hopefully support us on that journey. That's what we really need. So that's a big one. I think within the church, there are maybe like a subgenre of specific misconceptions I've encountered. Common ones would be, you know, you just need to pray about this and it will go away because cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And that's how they go away, which I think is just a misunderstanding fundamentally of what mental illness is because it is an illness. It is a disease. Our brains, if you put them under a machine, literally are lighting up differently than regular people's Mm -hmm. brains. There are parts of our bodies that are not functioning correctly Mm -hmm. chemically just like any other illness, the Lord can heal and he does heal, but that doesn't mean he will heal every time. So that's a common one. Or just believing that, you know, mental illness is like demonic influence or just lack of faith in general, even just, you know, that you need to trust in God and and he'll cure you, those kinds of things. So those are some of the misconceptions I've run into. Those are probably the most common ones. I think mental health definitely has a different perception rather Mm -hmm. than other physical health where it's a part Mm -hmm. of our physical body. It's a part of our physical health, but it has maybe a stigma or a real lack of understanding around it. So what are some things that you just wish people, whether particularly people within the church or faith community, Christians that you found don't understand, or even just in the general public, what are just a couple of things that you wish people really understood about mental health or mental illness? Yeah, that's a great question. One thing I think I wish people would understand is that idea that it is a real illness and that like any illness, it can be treated. Treating it doesn't make you sinful, right? So taking medication or seeing a therapist doesn't make you sinful, but also having the illness doesn't mean that you have a sin problem. (laughs) It just means that you're sick. So Mm. that's a big one. And I think that's common outside of the church as well. Maybe just phrased a little differently. It might be viewed as a weakness or you're just not pulling yourself together hard enough, but that's not what it is. It's an illness. So that's a big one. I think also I would want people to understand that people living with mental illness are doing their best you don't need to be afraid of us, Mm. even though sometimes the things that we do, especially in the midst of like harder episodes might go against social conventions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Like times when I'm really sick, I might do or say things that might seem like something that people who don't live with mental illness might not understand that kind of behavior, but we aren't scary, you know, and we're not (laughs) harmful. 
hurtful. And I think sometimes the media has portrayed mental illness as like a frightening thing that is dangerous. And that's not really an accurate picture. People with mental illness are way more likely to hurt themselves than they are to hurt other people, Mm -hmm. even if they are in the middle of an episode. And so just remembering that that is the illness taking over and not the person and the person is separate from their illness. Because I know that times when I'm really sick, I do or say things that are really out of character for me. And that can be hard when I'm coming back down off an episode to be like, how could I do that? I'm such a terrible person. But it's those moments that I have to remind myself that that's not really who I am. That's the illness. And the person that I am 98% of the time is who I really am, not the person that I am in my very worst, sickest moments. Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's helpful. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about too, is we are just past the year mark of a global pandemic. We in the United States have had um, a little bit of a rough go for <laughs> last year, as far as just some um, unrest and some political upheaval, a lot of racial injustice and another unrest. And I think many people are feeling heavy, you know, they, they're mm-hmm. feeling a lot. So what would be your advice to someone who's just struggling mentally mm-hmm. right now? And, you know, maybe they're wondering, gosh, I don't know if I actually have like a mental illness or I have a mental health issue that I need help with, or I'm struggling because world is hard right now. Mm-hmm. So what kind of would be the something that you would recommend that they do? What's their next step? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, the first thing I think, I mean, obviously I'm not a doctor, so I'll give that disclaimer first, but the first thing I would do is listen to what your body's telling you. And if you're finding that you are constantly struggling with symptoms of depression or anxiety, these are common things that people can go through for a season, especially during times of trauma or intense stress, which I would say we've all been experiencing for a year. And so while I don't really recommend Dr. Google for diagnosing, use Dr. Google to Google and see what some of the common symptoms of depression are or anxiety and see if that sounds like you. And if it does call your doctor, because your doctor will probably have good ideas for you about exercise or diet or things like that. Not necessarily just medication that can help you manage those symptoms. I would also recommend calling or texting a trusted friend, someone who, you know, you can trust to watch out for you and check in on you and just saying, Hey, I'm really struggling right now. And Sometimes putting labels on things can be scary. So you don't need to put a label on it. You can just say, I'm really having a hard time right now. I'm not okay. Could you just check in on me every three or four days or once a week? Could we meet for coffee every Tuesday at two or whatever? And just say, I just really need a friend to lean on right now because I'm not okay. I think that it can be scary to tell someone that you're not okay, but there's also a lot of power that comes from actually naming that thing because then once you've put it out in the open, it seems a lot easier to overcome. And once you put it out in the open with one or two trusted friends, now it's, there's three people who can confront this problem and who can help you through it. I'd also say my therapist taught me that left-right movement helps process trauma in the brain. Mm -hmm. So walking or cycling or swimming, anything that's repetitive, left-right, left-right is going to help you process trauma. So maybe just start taking a walk for 15 minutes a day. And if taking a walk feels like too much right now, maybe just spend 15 minutes being quiet in your house. But I think that finding those still moments can also be really helpful when the world feels like absolute chaos. Finding time to to be quiet can be a very strong act of resistance for our souls that can be healing to us on those inner parts. So those are some of the things I would say you can always call a therapist, you know, telehealth is more popular than ever before. And so <laughs> if you, you don't even have to have a car, you know, and there's lots of therapists out there with sliding scales. If finances are an issue, or if you have a local university, reach out to them. A lot of times they have people who are getting their masters in counseling or social work who need hours. And so they can give counseling for free. So that's another great resource to check out if you have a college or university near you. So those are just some of my ideas. I'm not saying that I'm like super knowledgeable and this will cure you, but (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, those are the things that I do when I start to recognize that I'm not okay. Yeah. Just leaning into your support system, I think is so important because we need support systems, whether we're mentally ill or not, right? Like life is just hard sometimes. And so having a really strong support system is I think invaluable, no matter what you're going through, just because life is going to be hard. And if you have people there to help you through the hard, it'll be easier. I promise. Yeah. Oh, that's all so great. Thank you. I really love what you're talking about right at the beginning when you said, listen to your body. I don't Mm -hmm. know that that's something that we're necessarily very well trained at. We don't practice that very much. And, or we think that there's a disconnect between our mind and our body. And we don't realize that our body is trying to give us feedback. And that's absolutely such a good point. 
Some of the things that you might not realize are a symptom of anxiety is maybe you're grinding your teeth at night and now all of a sudden you're sore all day in your neck and your shoulders because your jaw is constantly clenched or you've got a sick stomach every time you eat and it's because you're anxious and your stomach is reacting to the stress signal in your body. Maybe you have headaches every afternoon and you know, maybe it's the caffeine, but also maybe (laughs) it's because you're stressed, you know? And so that's why, I mean, like I said, don't use Dr. Google to diagnose you because that's not wise, but it could be wise to just say, what are some common symptoms in the body of anxiety or of depression? And you might say, wow, I'm really experiencing this. And I think I need to talk to someone and maybe it's not a doctor. Maybe it's just your husband and just saying, Hey, I think I'm struggling with a little bit of anxiety right now. And, you know, let's try doing a meditation every evening before bed to try and help cope with that anxiety. Our bodies do tell us a lot. And I think a good therapist will teach you that. And they'll teach you how to pay attention to those signs in your body, teach you how to come back down to your baseline through breathing exercises or meditation or mindfulness, you know, those are really helpful skills that have helped me to be aware of what's going on in my body and to come bring myself back down to baseline when I'm getting agitated and elevated and it's all starting to feel like too much. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about if gathering, one of the ways Mm -hmm. that we really bonded early on and if gathering is an amazing women's conference that Jenny Allen runs every year. And um, I'll make sure to put links to all this in show notes, but remember if lead in 2020, Dr. Anita Phillips Mm -hmm. (laughs) talked about, we were going to talk. That was so good. And I still, (laughs) it's in my head on repeat so much because it's been so valuable. And she talked about, we are experiencing collective trauma. And this mm-hmm. was back in last summer of 2020. So we didn't even know, you know, that we'd still be kind more. of sitting in the middle of this now and all of the upheaval that we would go through it through the rest of the year, but it's collective trauma and it helps to name it. It helped to name yeah. it trauma, which sometimes I think we're hesitant to do because we think people have it so much worse. Right. Um, but our body and our minds are interpreting it as trauma, whether we're willing to call it that or not. Right. And one of the things she said that's been so helpful is you don't have to wait till you're through it or till it's done to start processing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can wait until 2022 or 2023 or whoever knows mm-hmm. when we're going to kind of be on the other side of at least the pandemic, or we could be processing it now. And simple things, mm-hmm. like you said, making sure we're drinking enough water so that our body knows we're not in crisis mode. Survival. Yeah. Yeah. Taking walks that left, right brain connection to, to process some of this. So there's simple things that make a really big difference. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of times we think, oh, trauma is for people. It's for vets, you know? Right. (laughs) Um, right. I don't have trauma because I've never been to Iraq. And so we associate it with some really specific traumatic events. Right. I think you're absolutely right that that's something that we tend to do. And because I'm also um, a big fan of therapy, I think everyone should go to counseling at some point, if not always, but we can have Jesus and a counselor and medication. You know, it's what what works best for us. And I'm so grateful for medicine that, you know, has advanced to the point where we can have these things at our disposal that help us function well. One of the things that I learned was lowercase T versus capital T trauma. And that really helped me become more comfortable calling it trauma. Like, okay, it's lowercase T trauma. I wasn't attacked. Like you said, I haven't been in combat. Those are capital T traumas maybe, but lowercase T trauma. And you can't deny that that's what we've been collectively as a nation, as a world experiencing if for no other reason than the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. You're right on with that, April. I do want to ask you, you gave us some really awesome resources and ideas for people who maybe are struggling with their own mental health. I'm wondering if you can give us some ideas about how we can best be supportive of our friends who are struggling with their mental health more situationally or our friends and family with mental illness, ways that we can be supportive and maybe things that are helpful to say, and maybe even some things that we should avoid Mm -hmm. um, saying or asking. And then specifically, and I think these might be two different answers, but when someone is struggling with suicidal ideation, how best to support people in that space. And then also just kind of how best to support day by day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think a huge thing when you have a loved one who's struggling with their mental health is to listen without judgment because a lot of times when I'm feeling really hopeless and I tell someone how hopeless I'm feeling and they say, no, look on the bright side. I'm like, I want to pop your head off your body right now. You're so annoying (laughs) because I feel like this is such, you know, and I know that they're just trying to help because they're just trying to be positive. Sometimes I do need positivity and I need someone to pull me out of the pit and stop letting me wallow in my own self-pity. But other times I just need someone to like get down in the pit with me and be like, wow, it's really dark from down here, isn't it? Like that looks like a long way up. I don't know how we're going to do it, but look, now I'm down here in the pit with you and maybe we can do it together. So I think that's a huge thing is just to listen without judgment and just kind of sit with them in what they're struggling with. Like in the book of Job, Job was fine with his friends when they were just hanging out with him. It was when they started giving him bad advice that he got frustrated. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) Don't give bad advice. I guess that's my number one. Also in that same veins, don't give medical advice. When people say these kinds of things, they're just trying to be helpful. And that's so awesome, but it is not helpful when you tell me what new treatment to try or what Mm. essential oil you're selling that I should put on or what worked for your brother's cousin's girlfriend's best friend with (laughs) diet they tried that they saw on Instagram and it cured their depression. Like that's super great for your cousin's brother's girlfriend's best friend, but um, (laughs) that's not for me. And me and my doctor are the ones who will make decisions about my medical treatment. And I don't really need input from every layman about what to do for my medical treatment. So just refrain and just sit with them in it instead. I think also just checking up on them regularly. When you have depression, it's really hard to reach out because it there is a lot of shame involved. And also it takes effort. And sometimes when you're depressed, effort isn't in short supply and you've got to reserve what effort you have for basic tasks and just making it through the day. And so to have somebody preemptive reach out and say, Hey, how are you doing? That's huge. And I also think as a friend, it's really helpful when you offer to do something without asking what you can do. Hmm. So while it is nice and better than nothing to say, Hey, how are you doing? Just thinking about you. Is there anything I can do for you? It is even better when you say, Hey, just been thinking about you and I hope you're doing okay. I thought you could use a coffee this morning. So I sent you $5 for your Starbucks gift card. Just have that on me and be blessed. That is a lot more helpful than just saying, what can I do because it's embarrassing to ask for what you really need. And so if you know what they really need, especially if you know what they really need, but even if you don't have an idea, just preemptively take the step because you're not going to offend anyone by saying, Hey, um, you know, I made two casseroles tonight and my family doesn't need both of them. So I'm just going to leave the other one on your doorstep. That's Mm. not a big deal. One time my sister-in-law knew that I was really stressed and not doing super well. And so one day when I was at work, she came over and she did my dishes and then she left. And it's like the rest of the house was still a mess, but my dishes were done. And that was such an act of love because I didn't have to do them. (laughs) You know what I mean? And sometimes just preemptively doing those things without waiting to have the depressed person tell you exactly what they need can be really helpful because it's hard to ask. So yeah, yeah, those are some ideas. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that's great. One of the things I hear you saying that I don't know that I would have thought of is I love the idea of offer something specific. You know, I'm going to bring you dinner or I sent you this money for coffee, but one of the ways that you're wording it, I don't even know if you were doing this intentionally is it's not a question. It's not like, is it okay if I bring you dinner or would no, you like yeah, me? Just it's, say you're gonna I'm bringing it. it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I don't think I would have thought of that. Yeah. 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 I love that. I love that. That's totally how it is. And I don't think that's just for people with mental illness. Asking for what you need might just be more coordination than a brain can handle. Like think about after a death, you know, and people are like, oh, what can I do for you? It's like, I don't know. I'm just trying to deal with the fact that my loved one died. I don't have time to figure out exactly what each different person who's asking me can do for me. Yeah. So it's way more helpful if you just take that step and just do it. And I don't know anybody who's going to be offended because you gave them $5 on their Starbucks card. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. even if that's not what they really needed the most, they're going to feel so loved in that moment. So just take the first step. Mm-hmm. I love that. And w- when you were talking about get into the pit and you might've had this visual in your head too, but you reminded me, Brene Brown has a great video about empathy and what that looks like. And it's, I think part of her TED talk and she's speaking and someone made it into kind of an animated video where it's in our human nature, maybe to want to fix it or help yeah. or do something. And we're saying there's some really awesome things that you can just reach out and do and make someone feel loved and alleviate a little something for them. But also getting into the pit with them is so important important to not just, um, the example she gives is, do you want a sandwich? You know, like I'm going to fix this for you. Do you want a sandwich versus what was more helpful to that person in the pit is the person who just crawled down in there with them and sits Mm -hmm. in there with them. It's like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to fix this, but you're not alone. Well, I've never seen that Brene Brown video, but 
I'm glad that she and I are on the same wavelength. About Very this. much so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She is definitely the vulnerability, you know, anti-shame guru right. when it comes to empathy and things. So I'll, I'll put a link to that too, and I'll make sure yeah. to send it to you. Yeah. I, I need to see this. <laughs> yeah. It's great. So specifically, I do want to come back to suicidal ideation. I think mm-hmm. for someone who maybe hasn't struggled with that or experienced that themselves, that can be really scary when you know oh, yeah. a friend or family member is considering that. We've said the word ideation several times. So maybe it's helpful to explain that and define what Mm -hmm. that means. And then also what can we do? We have a friend Mm -hmm. who we know is thinking about suicide. What do we do? Yeah. Oh gosh. It's such a hard thing and really scary. And it's scary for the person going through it too. And that's the first thing I want you to know is nobody's saying this as a weapon against you or to hurt your feelings or to frighten you. They are terrified. And if they have taken the step to ask for help or tell you that they're struggling with this, that is so huge. And so the first thing you need to do is not say, well, stop thinking about that or don't talk that way because that immediately heaps shame on the problem. And there's already a lot of shame around these feelings. And Mm -hmm. so the better thing to do is say, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I'm so thankful you trusted me with that because it is very vulnerable. It's maybe one of the most vulnerable things you can share with someone. Mm -hmm. And so to recognize that someone is trusting you with that in that moment is a big deal. The second thing that I think loved ones can do or should know when a loved one is struggling with suicidal ideation is that there are different levels of that. For me, there's like the level where it's like, I have a plan, I have a date, I'm doing it and nobody can stop me. And if we're at that level, we need emergent care. Like we need to go to the hospital. And then for me, there's other levels where I'm kind of like, you know, this is something that's passing through my mind a few times a day, but I'm setting it aside and I'm not dwelling on it. And then there's every level in between. So I think it's important that when you're speaking to someone who's suicidal, you kind of understand what level they're at because all of them are very serious, but there are also levels of seriousness within the seriousness, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely find out if they have a plan or a date because both of those things are very big red flags that this person needs immediate medical care. Like you should not stop on your way to the hospital. You need medical care. That's the number one thing is find out where they are in those thoughts. And then second of all, make sure that they are getting professional help. And if that doesn't need to be the hospital right in that moment, they do need to be speaking with a doctor or a mental health professional. And I would not be leaving that person alone probably at all until we've figured out a plan forward, making sure that person has a really good support system. So maybe it's just you and their support system, but maybe if you're a friend, maybe you can add their parents or their siblings into that support system and all of you can work together towards finding some solutions. I mean, you've armed us with some really specific questions yeah. you know, that we can ask. And you did say earlier in the conversation, you might call a friend and say, I'm having some of these thoughts. Can you just come and sit with me and watch television? That would tell me you're not so far into this process that you have a plan and a date. You're just kind of at the beginning stages of that or struggling with that. Do you think that that's an accurate assessment? Uh, or yeah, it's just good I, to ask the questions. I think it's good to ask the questions. Yeah. I would say that you just need to figure out where this person is, make sure that they're safe, make sure that they're secure, make sure that they, they're not intending to follow through on this immediately. And once we have that step taken care of, then we can work on solutions um, okay. with, with a mental health professional or a doctor or both preferably, you know, um, I would always recommend medication and therapy together because they both work better if you're doing both of them at the same yeah. time. So that would be the steps that I would take to help a suicidal friend. There's a lot of local resources. Too. You know, yeah. um, certain cities, like anybody listening who does live in Boise, there's a 24 hour crisis center. It's free and you just show up and you're like, hi, I'm not feeling safe, but I don't really want to check myself into the hospital. Can I just like hang out? And they're like, yes. And there's food and there's beds so you can sleep and there's TV. Mm. And there's books and you can say up to 23 hours and 59 minutes before they have to let you go. And you can just come down from that hot moment to a cool moment for the same thing. You know, there's suicide hotlines. Almost all states have their own as well as the national suicide hotline. Those are great resources. NAMI, N-A-M-I is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they have classes for people struggling with mental illness, but they also have classes. They're free that you can take for family members who are struggling with mental illness. Those are some of the other resources I would check out. Those are Good. Okay. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. I think, I mean, just really practical advice. So thank you. Yeah. So how are you doing now? 
you moved at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> you were pretty yeah. isolated. We went into a darker, colder, wetter season. We're just starting to come out. It's starting to warm up a little bit. The sun's coming out. But just how are you doing and how's your mental health now? You know, I think right now is something that I'm needing to monitor. I'm okay right now, but I have definitely been going through a really difficult season at my job. A lot of changes that we didn't really expect and a lot of stressful things happening that are my responsibility to sort through. And so that's something that, again, if I'm too busy or if I'm too stressed, that can become a trigger for me for symptoms. And so just monitoring myself right now really well. I think overall, I've been surprised at how well I did throughout the pandemic. And there were definitely moments, especially in the winter where it seemed really dark. But I think for me, the extra time at home has been really beneficial. In Boise, we were really busy all the time. I had a lot of friends. I was involved in a lot of things. I had a lot of commitments. Plus I worked full time and we were just on the go all the time. And I've noticed that overall, since we moved here, my symptoms have been pretty much few and far between. And I think a lot of that is due to the slower pace of life that we have over here in Washington that we've been forced to have because of a pandemic, but that I'm actually kind of grateful for and would like to continue even after life goes back to normal, whatever that is. Is whenever that is. I think, you know, there have been things that have definitely been hard throughout this year. Some of the social unrest has been really hard on my heart and disappointing to me. I think that's actually maybe the thing I felt most throughout the pandemic is disappointed because I've been disappointed in people around me who I thought were one way and then turned out to be another. I've been disappointed that I had ideas and dreams for our move to Washington that didn't come to fruition. We've lived here a year and I think we've met three people. Mm. <laughs> um, it's been, you know, I've, it's been very isolating and I've been, dis- so I had to kind of let go of that dream. There's been the disappointment of realizing what it's like to be away from my family. We live with my in-laws now, which I'm so thankful for. I don't know how we ever would have made it through if we had lived somewhere where we didn't know anyone, but thankfully my in-laws are right upstairs. We live in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, So that's been great, but it has been disappointing to realize how much I've come to rely on my mom and dad and my sister being away from them has been, it's just been disappointing, you know, and just the death of dreams. I think that I had for this time was hard. That's the thing I think I felt the most. I think I'll take disappointment over depression, but it has just been tricky. And I think in some ways I've even been disappointed by God, which sounds kind of stupid to say, but I did feel like, didn't you ask us to come here? And now (laughs) everything is really not the way it was supposed to be. And so I'm a little disappointed because it seems like maybe you brought me here under false pretenses. (laughs) And so that's been something I've had to work through. And reading the book Out of Sorts by Sarah Bessie was one of the most healing things I've done in a really long time. That book was amazing and just exactly what I needed to hear. And then again, If Gathering, which we keep talking about, but If Gathering 2021 was so amazing and Mm. just reminded me of the heart of why do I follow Jesus? Why do I want other people to follow Jesus? Like what is the heart behind Jesus's love for me and for other people? And why do I want to share that in the first place? So I think I'm finding that spark again and I just got vaccinated. So um, two weeks from now I can go out in the world and not that I was constantly going out with fear, but I was a little bit, you know, it's scary. And so that's really exciting. I feel like there's hope ahead. My boss, Brenda, she talks a lot about leaning in to the pain and how, when we lean in, we can grow and we can learn. Whereas when we resist, we just stay hard hearted. I don't want to be hard hearted. I want to be soft hearted. And so even though this has been really, really hard, I'm super thankful for this time because I feel like I've learned a lot about myself and what kind of life I want to live. While my faith in Jesus went through some hard times this year, I feel like what came out on the other side is a lot stronger Mm -hmm. than it was going in because now I know that I mean it. When it comes down to really, it matters. And is this going to be the only thing getting you through the day? It's like, okay, I think I believe this. I think I really mean it when I say that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. That's kind of a really long convoluted answer to how I'm doing (laughs) And just like wrapping a year's worth of like doubts and confusion and questions and disappointments into one brief summary. But I feel like Jesus is it for me. And so no matter how I'm doing, I feel like it's me and him forever. And that's going to be enough for me. That's awesome. Not to go too abruptly from one topic to another, but (laughs) as we are wrapping up, I want to ask you some lightning round questions that are much lighter in content just to help us kind of get to know Katie a little bit better. You know the questions, but I don't know your answers yet. So I'm really excited to hear this. Okay. All right. Number one, if a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be? 
and who would play you? Okay. I feel like a movie has already been made of my life, basically. And that movie is Lady Bird. Have you seen Lady Bird? I, I haven't. About it, like I know, but I still haven't seen it. I freaking love Lady Bird. It's not really <laughs> about my life. There are multiple differences, but that movie speaks to my heart in such a way. Like it just so strongly identifies with what I felt and experienced in um, my friendships and my family growing up as a teenager. So I love Lady Bird. So my movie would be a drama. It would be directed by Greta Gerwig. I'm not sure who would play me when I first thought of this I thought maybe Kristen Bell because I know that Kristen Bell has depression Mm -hmm. and also I feel like she's kind of like me with just her general personality and also she kind of looks like me both have blonde hair right so Mm -hmm. she's way skinnier though so I would have to lose serious weight before or she would have to get a lot fatter before she played me I don't know if Greta Gerwig would work with Kristen Bell I don't know if that's like a relationship that would happen but and if they didn't make one I would just say Lady Bird is close enough this is my movie so yeah (laughs) well I have to watch it because it's, yeah, it's her so life good. story. Okay. Yes. You're going to watch it and be like, this isn't your life story at all. <laughs> then I'll have to explain to you why it is. Okay. Just like certain things. Her relationship with her mom really reminds me of the way me and my mom were okay. in high school. Like so much. Even like some of the phrases that they say to each other. I'm like, we said that to each other. <laughs> okay. Next question. What are you afraid of? Uh, moths. I am death. Well, all bugs all bugs, but especially spiders and moths. I am really scared of moths. And I think I'm more scared of moths than I am of spiders because spiders, it's like, if I see a spider and I run to the other side of the room, I know the spider will stay on the other side of the room. But if I see a moth, it can follow me and touch my face. And it's very scary. I do not like moths. I don't like anything creepy crawly at all, which is kind of weird because I really like animals, but I don't like creepy crawlies but especially moths. No, thank you. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. (laughs) What was your last Halloween costume? I never get to dress up for Halloween because my husband's a party pooper and he hates Halloween and I don't want to dress up without him because I'm, I don't know, socially awkward. But a couple of years ago, I did convince him to dress up for Halloween and I was Mary Berry and he was Paul Hollywood. And I walked around with a little Mary Berry like wig and I held her cookbook and a spatula that said, keep calm and bake on. And I had like my little sweater that was very Mary Berry. And then Sam dressed up as Paul and he carried around a loaf of ciabatta. That's fantastic. I really, I think we're going to need a picture of that. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. What is a skill or talent you wish you had? So I like this question because I have two skills and talents I wish I had, and I'm working on them. So the first is I grew up in a musical family and I was the only one who was not musical. And so this year I decided what the heck I'm going to be musical. So I'm taking piano lessons. So that's my first one. I wish I could play the piano and I'm working on it. I'm learning. I'm taking lessons. That's great. But then the second is I want to know another language. So I've been doing my Duolingo with Spanish. I did take Spanish in school for a long time, like seven or eight years, but I haven't practiced in a long time. And so now I'm practicing and I'm, I'm getting there. So awesome. I love that. What are you reading right now? Right now I'm reading the new Kristen Hanna book. Um, It's called The Four Winds. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited about it because it's about a family who lives in the Dust Bowl in Texas in the 30s. And then they moved to California to find work. And I was so interested in the story, first of all, because I love Kristen Hanna, but -hmm. also because this is like exactly what my grandpa did. My grandpa was in his 20s in Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl. And eventually he and his brother and his brother's wife moved to California to pick fruit. And they camped out and lived in Hoovervilles and all that stuff. And that's exactly what the family is doing in the book. And so it's super cool to just read this because you know, Kristen Hanna, she makes everything come to life. It's awesome to just sit there and be like, whoa, this is like exactly what my grandpa was going through and what he lived through. It gives me a lot more respect for him. Wow. Not that I didn't respect him before. I definitely did. But right. just like just that new, re- the realization of how horrifically hard things were for him right. and his family um, is just a whole new level of insight. So that's really cool. And it's a buddy wow. read with my grandma. Oh, I love yeah. that. And last question, what's saving your life right now? Oh boy, what's saving my life right now? It's my birthday in a month and I am a huge, like, I love my birthday. I love my birthday. I get so excited and I like turn it into a, you know, month long celebration. So honestly, just like daydreaming about all the things I'm going to ask for, for my birthday and picking out my birthday <laughs> wish list, And I'm going to be home for the whole month of May with my family. Cause we'll be fully vaccinated. And so we'll be back to spend time with them. And so I'm excited to spend that time with my birthday, with my family, but my birthday is also fun. Cause my sister and I, and her husband are all born in the same month. And growing up, my grandma who's now passed away was her birthday was the day before mine. 
So mm-hmm. we've all, May has always just been like this really happy because we're celebrating everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love my birthday. So that's giving me life right now. It's almost my birthday. I love that. That's a good one. Katie, thank you so much for all your time, your insight, your vulnerability, sharing your story with us. I really, really value you and appreciate you. How can we find you and support you and the words you're putting out there and the things you're sharing? Yeah. Well, I have a website. You can check me out there. It's katiefredrickson.com. Katie is spelled C-A-I-T-I-E. And then Fredrickson is the name Fred, the name Rick and the word son. So anyway, (laughs) but the Katie, so Fredrickson is very standard, but Katie has two eyes. So you got to remember that. Um, And then on Instagram, I'm at Katie writes also Katie with two eyes, but I won't be on Instagram until the end of August, but I would super love to see new friends there when I come back. So and there's some great content there that we can catch up on. Yeah, there's existing content. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Great. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I have to thank Katie again for coming on the show this week and sharing her story of her walk with bipolar disorder and offering us some really practical advice and supports that we can use when we are struggling with mental health issues on our own, but also how we can help support our friends and family members who may be struggling with mental illness. I want to make really clear again one more time before I close out the show today that neither Katie nor myself are medical professionals or experts in any way. We both have struggled with our own mental health and a lot of what we talked about today came out of that journey. I'm including links to many of the things that we talked about today in the show notes, so I hope you'll check those out. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening so you won't miss out on any of my amazing guests. We have some incredible people in the lineup coming up in the following weeks. Hey, we'd love to hear how you're doing. We'd love to know if anything on the podcast today was helpful to you or if you have any suggestions to share with us and our listeners about managing stress, processing trauma, or supporting the people that we love with mental health issues. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at No Ordinary People Podcast, and we hope to see you there. I'm going to leave you today with some words from one of our favorites, Mr. Fred Rogers. He says, anything that's human is mentionable, and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, They become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. Be back next week.